1: Boris Johnson roused the Tory faithful this week in his keynote conference speech that pledged to tear up the
2: UK's economic model. We are embarking now on a change of direction that has been long overdue in the UK economy. We're not going back to the same old broken model with low wages, low growth, low skills and low productivity, all of it enabled and and assisted by uncontrolled immigration.
1: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times. With me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be analysing the Conservative Party conference this week. First, we'll be looking at that speech by the Prime Minister you heard at the top and ask, how credible is it? Can low-skilled immigration simply be replaced without a big inflation risk? Political editor George Parker and Chief Political Commentator Robert Shimsley will look into it. And later, we'll be examining the other main theme of this year's conference: leveling up. Did we gain any extra insight from Johnson and Michael Go on what it means, how it can be delivered, or what success even looks like? Two special guests will explore: Public First Rachel Wolfe and Paul Swinney from the Centre for Cities Think Tank. Well, George and Robert, welcome back. Morning. Hi, Seb. Now, how do we both feel about this year's Conservative conference It's an experience that I'm afraid this might be almost my decade of doing Tory party conferences? And I have to say, if you strip out the politics and the announcements, which there were none, it felt like a rather upbeat do from the Tories, given it's their 2019 election lap. George, how did you feel
3: about it? Well, I can go one better than you said. My first one was Margaret Thatcher's last uh, Tory conference in 1990. <laughs> Uh, so I've got a bit of a historical sweep on it. Well, it felt to me, i say, I mean, it was it was pretty upbeat, I thought, um, in spite of the sort of bad headlines that uh, were battering the party from outside of the hall. It also felt to me like a very much a midterm party conference um, in the party, focusing on what, was, what was, uh, the slogan was, get on with the job. And i say sort of very flat on announcements, and Boris Johnson's speech was quite short. Also, the other thing that's just... Was noticeable was that there were fewer people there than usual. Actually, one of the um, one of the features was that the hall, apart from the slightly expanded hall they used for J- Boris Johnson's speech, was quite small, and often the atmosphere inside the the smaller hall was quite flat. And that's obviously a COVID related thing.
1: And, Robert, what did you make of it? Because as well as our very tough day job of seeing countless people for speed dating over coffees and trying to drop in on fringe meetings, there of course, the very much evening parties. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I saw that rarest of sights, which was Robert Shrimsley with a glass of champagne at one point. You did,
4: but I think you'll have seen that the champagne was still mostly in the glass. Uh, I do have a conference rule about trying not to drink and, and trying to turn in sometime around midnight because otherwise they're just hellish. I, mean, I have to say, I think my, my sense of the conference was, first of all, that everyone was just very, very happy to be there. It was a big deal for all of them. After all of the the, you know, the, the lockdowns and, and, and social distancing, they were just thrilled to be there. There certainly wasn't any social distancing at this conference. It was walking through the Midland Hotel, the main conference hotel, was, was like going into sort of a mosh pit at Glastonbury at times. This was the party where they were celebrating the election win. They hadn't had the chance to do that. It was also very much, I thought, the sense of Boris Johnson absolutely supremely hanging over the whole party. No one to challenge him, as George Reference, You know, everybody else spoke on smaller stages. It was all really very, very substantially about him. And I think they were a in very, very upbeat mood. It's very much a bubble. So the extent to which they were thinking what was going on in the outside world was quite limited. The only thing I picked up on, which I think I'm sure we'll touch on, was just the beginnings of rumblings about the scale of taxation that this government's imposed.
3: Just to pick up on Robert's point there about the mosh pit at Glastonbury, Seb, I think you and I were witness to the, probably the most memorable scene of the conference, which was Michael Gove dancing uh, on the final night at the karaoke night in the conference centre.
1: Indeed, we've been to that karaoke many times before, but I have to say it is the first time I have seen multiple cabinet ministers indulging themselves in a bit of singing on the stage. But let's move on to the main topic of the week. Tory party conference used to be renowned for Boris Johnson Day when the mayor of London or Brexit rabble rouser or just the backbench MP would arrive in Manchester or Birmingham to upset the agenda of the leader of the day. Now, every day at Conservative Party conference is Johnson Day. His adoration amongst the grassroots of him the title of King Boris. But his keynote speech was not particularly different to those Boris speeches of the past. It was filled with colourful language, persuasive rhetoric, and sometimes a total disconnection to reality. But at its core, Johnson said he was going to make a clean break with the Conservatives'
2: record of the last decade. And after decades of drift and dither, this reforming government, This can-do government, this government that got Brexit done, that's getting the COVID vaccine rollout done, is going to get social care done. And we are going to deal with the biggest underlying issues of our economy and society, the problems that no government has had the guts to tackle before. And I mean the long-term structural weaknesses in the UK economy. Well, George, just to begin on that point there, the most remarkable thing about
1: Boris Johnson's speech, which really was, I think, the main event of Toy party conference this year, is just how much he was distancing himself, not just from the governments of Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, but also the past decade of conservative governments, which he only surveyed briefly under Theresa May. But he's essentially saying that this situation, we found ourselves in the UK with shortages for farm workers, for HGV drivers. This is the direct result of his new immigration policies, and it's now something they're actively pursuing. And the question that was hanging over me all week was, is this a strategy they've stumbled on just as a reason to explain the shortages, or is this something that Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, are actively pursuing?
3: One of the bits of political genius that Boris Johnson has exercised since being prime minister is to sort try and distance himself from previous Conservative administrations, bearing in mind that the next election he'll be seeking the fifth consecutive Conservative win in a row. Distancing yourself from previous Conservative administrations and trying to make yourself to be a, out to be a fresh kind of Conservative government is uh, is part of his part of his skill, I suppose. You could say, in terms of the the new economic model that we heard a lot about. <laughs> From the podium today, uh, for this week, from uh, Boris Johnson. I mean, there wasn't a great deal about this running into the conference, was it, Seb? I mean, it was, all, it was almost like this uh, this great new economic plan that sort of dropped into Manchester from from outer space. Look, I mean, it's fair to say, of course, they've talked in the past about controlling immigration and so on, but this whole new economic model is a bit of a new theme. So, why was he doing it? I mean, there were two two things. I think first of all, and it goes very much to Boris Johnson's um, political style. The first thing is that the government's facing a really tough winter with uh, multiple potential crises piling up from rising fuel prices to shortages in the shops, cost of living crisis. And so what Boris Johnson does is what he often does, which is he blames someone else. In this case, he blamed previous administrations for failing to deal with problems of productivity and so on. And of course, and we'll talk about this a bit later, blaming business for failing to invest in their staff and their companies. So there's a blame shifting going on there. And the other thing he did, which is another theme of his speech and something he does all the time, is he takes something that's quite bad, namely grim headlines and queues outside petrol stations, and tries to turn it into something good, in this case, a new economic model, just as he, by the way, did with the shambolic evacuation from Kabul, which in his speech, he dressed up as a kind of Dunkirk moment for the country.
1: Now, Robert, obviously, this rhetoric includes this saying, we're going to get to higher wages, we're not going to open up migration, but at the core of it, it was about business Which is something you've written about in your column this week. This is quite a remarkable shift from the party that's always sold itself as the force of business that will want to help business. Whereas essentially the mood from Boris Johnson, both in public and in private, is essentially that they think business has become a bit lazy, a bit too dependent on lots of low skill, cheap migration, a bit too dependent on the state. And essentially they're not going to get any help from the government that's going to have to tough it out. Do you think it's a good strategy? The problem with political
4: strategies is that they have to at some point be related to the underlying economics because you can play politics for quite a long time and get away with it. At some point, the economics has to match your strategy or it comes up and whacks you. And I think that's the danger that Boris Johnson is running. I think you know it's quite a lot to unpack in terms of the, the approach to business. First of all, we know that, you know, just after the Brexit vote, he famously sort of said F business when told about how angry they were about a particular model. So he's had a a view for a while, which is that businesses, they're all part of the globalist, internationalist agenda, which was uh, underpinned the Remain campaign and support for the EU. And that they've had life very cosy, being able to rely on large amounts of cheap foreign labour which has disincentivized them from investing in their own plant and machinery, and making their, making their businesses more productive. And there's, there's something in it. It's hard to say how much, but there is something in this. And part of the Brexit view that certain people like Dominic Cummings had was that actually it was going to force Britain to be more competitive, get leaner, get meaner, get, 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 get more effective at business. And so that has been an, under, an underlying view of the government all the way through the Brexit debate. There's also, it has to be said, a a, a zeitgeist at the moment, which is that people are looking at businesses and saying they have to be more than just profit machines. We we, we have um, the ESG agenda, people talking about sustainability, they want a friendlier form of capitalism. So there is a mood in the world that says business has to do more than just make money. And Boris, to some extent, is tapping into that. Having said that, I I think the clearest measure of, of how opportune it was, was the response of Simon Wolfson, the boss of Next, a a very, very strong Conservative and a very, very strong supporter of Brexit, who went on the radio to denounce what Boris Johnson was saying. Um, As he said, this was causing enormous problems to businesses up and down the country. I mean, one does have to say he should have seen it coming, given that he was supported a government which was supported policy, which was ending free movement. But, But I think businesses have been taken aback by the way Boris has pulled this switch on them. I think it's going to go on for a while, but it's all about essentially avoiding blame for the immediate shortages and also avoiding a situation where
1: people turn around and say, God, Brexit was a bad idea, wasn't it? And George, of course, there were many things Boris Johnson did to sort of explain his economic strategy. And one of them was invoking the memory of Margaret Thatcher.
2: Does anyone seriously imagine that we should not now be raising the funding to sort this out? Is that really the view of responsible Conservatives? I can tell you something. Margaret Thatcher would not have ignored the meteorite that has just crashed through the public finances. She would have wagged her finger and said, more borrowing now is just higher interest rates and even higher taxes later.
1: And this was Boris Johnson, George, talking about the rise in national insurance to pay for the NHS backlog due to coronavirus, but also to try and fix the social care thing. And I guess there was a smattering of applause in the room to that. But you got the sense that the activists weren't happy. And in some ways, tax rises were the dog that didn't bark at this conference, because you could have imagined there being a lot of unhappiness on the fringe. There's a lot of people expressing their displeasure that this is the party that's meant to be of low taxes, that's just raised taxes taxes by eleven
3: billion pounds a year. But similarly, people seem to have just kind of gone along with it. Yeah, I agree. That's an interesting feature of this conference. And, you know, famously we now have or heading for the highest tax burden as a share of the country's GDP since Clement Attlee was Prime Minister back in nineteen fifty. And it was intriguing that Boris Johnson used invoked Margaret Thatcher, as you heard in that clip, to justify what he's been doing. I'm not sure it's exactly how Margaret Thatcher would have done it. I'm not sure Margaret Thatcher would necessarily have approved an extra 12 billion a year of extra spending on the health service in the first place. But it is true that Margaret Thatcher sort of believed in good bookkeeping and trying to keep the nation's finances on track. There are some people in the Conservative Party who, who think the government should be borrowing to fund this rather than actually increasing taxes, sort of the more the Reaganite wing of the Conservative Party, people like Liz Truss. But nevertheless, yeah, you're right. It was it was a feature of this conference that tax, high taxes weren't a bigger thing I think probably people are holding their nerve and you can start to see, and you heard it in Rishi Sunak's speech at the conference this week, a hint at the, to the Tory activists that if they take tough decisions now, put up taxes now, take some tough spending decisions now, there could be scoped for tax cuts or the start of tax cuts going to the next election. That's clearly the government's strategy, that before the next election, they put a down payment on tax cuts, which they then hope to be able to sort of push through into the next parliament if they win the next election.
4: I'd not actually, say I mean, I, I think the, the tax. Uh, this one is, is 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 beginning to rumble. You certainly could pick it up on the fringes. I I, I talked to one Conservative who said we're, who, who joked said, "You know, we're 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 now the party of responsible socialism," and you know, it's not just the national insurance um, rises. They're they're the tax of the moment. But you know, from next year, some of the tax measures that Rishi Sunak put in place a little while ago, the freezing of income tax allowances, the beginning of the rationing up of corporation tax, the, these begin to kick in, and they take place over four years. And over the course of that time, the, income, the freezing of thresholds will pull an extra million people into paying income tax, pull an extra 1.3 million people into the higher income tax threshold. And I think the concern the Conservatives have, apart from the ideological and philosophical one, they don't like being a party that puts up taxes, is people are going to start to notice this you know, in, in their pay packets, in their wallets, in their purses. They're going to start feeling poorer, especially if we have a period of um, inflation, higher energy bills. And I think the real concern for the Conservatives, the concern they should have, actually, is that the
1: public is going to start noticing that it's not as well off as it used to be. And there was some polling out this week that showed, actually, that I'm sure we'll have a few jitters at Conservative Party HQ, that the Tories are no longer the most trusted party on tax. They are for the overall economy. But there's been a flip over there where between Labour and the Tories, which, again, is sort of generally quite remarkable. George, let's look at the one thing that wasn't mentioned in the speech. And that was kind of the surreal nature of this. And I think our colleague, uh, Robert Hutton, did a sketch where he talked about Boris Land from this and just pointed out about how totally disconnected it was from society. And when I spoke to Conservative MPs from across the country at this conference, they were sort of just shrugging their shoulders and kind of saying, well, this is all nice and dandy, but in the outside world, people can't fill up their cars. They're worried about the cost of living. They're worried about shortages. And Boris Johnson didn't mention any of this in his speech, but ahead ahead of that main address, he told the BBC
2: this. Uh, when you talk about uh, some of the, the supply chain issues, that's really a function of the, the, the world economy, the, particularly the UK economy, coming back to life after Covid, sucking in gas in particular. There's massive demand for that in, in Asia. Uh, there's a shortage of, of lorry drivers actually uh, around the world, from Poland to the United States, even in China, they're short of, uh, of lorry drivers. Is that true, George, that what Boris Johnson has put forward there? Because a lot of other people are
1: saying, in fact, yes, there are global problems, but the UK has been exacerbated by Brexit and this being Tory party conference. Of course, nobody wants to mention that fact. But how long can that narrative last of just saying things that may not exactly be backed up by the facts?
3: Well, that was another classic example of Boris Johnson saying that something which looks quite bad, like mile-long queues outside petrol stations, is actually a sign of how good things are, and it's a sign of the giant stirring after the COVID COVID crisis. But picking up a point Robert was making earlier, in the end, the economics catch up with the politics, and I think it's one of Boris Johnson's gifts as a politician that even when things are looking bad, he will paint bright pictures about the future, and the public respond well to that. They don't like if they can see things are going badly and they're miserable. They don't want to hear politicians saying how bad things are. They want someone to say there's a brighter future ahead. That's what Boris Johnson does. And it certainly got him through a week in Manchester at the Tory party conference. But the problem is that he's facing a very, very difficult few months ahead. And in the end, people won't be blaming global shortages of lorry drivers if they can't get food at Christmas or certain types of food at Christmas or toys at Christmas or their energy prices are going up. They'll look for someone close to home to blame, and they'll blame the Prime Minister. And I think Boris Johnson acknowledged that. That was the right why, why he was getting the blame shifting in early at this conference, because in the end, if you're a government battling on multiple fronts, trying to contain different crises, you start to make mistakes. People start to feel worse off, as Robert was saying. The tax rises are coming down the line in April after what will be a very tough winter anyway. The new chief economist at the Bank of England saying that the balance of opinion opinions shifted to great concerns about the inflation outlook. All of these things coming together are very big problems for Boris Johnson. So he breezed his way through Manchester this week. But as one Tory strategist said to us on the fringes of the conference, let's see how things look at Christmas.
1: Now, generally, Robert, Boris Johnson's political standing is as high as it's ever been within the party, despite doing all these unconservative things. And even if the party is not quite in love with Johnsonism, it still seems to be in love with Johnson. The fact there was a stage built just for his speech speaks to that. Did you pick up any murmurings from the conference about any other potential rivals or anything along those lines?
4: Well, I mean, at a Conservative Party conference, it would be unusual if people weren't talking about other contenders and other possibilities because nothing Conservatives like more than having a gossip about who might be next. So there's always a bit of that. And, you know, the two names that keep cropping up are Rishi Sunak not at all surprisingly. And Liz Truss, um, increasingly less surprisingly, just been promoted to Foreign Secretary, seen very much and happy to be seen as the the, the, the true heir of free market policies, a true Thatcherite, one of the few who's actually consistently defended um, free market positions. People like her and they cheer her. And certainly some of the events she went to, she was really being, they, they were they were enjoying seeing her. So there's a bit of that. But I think I have to say, not very much. The one thing is all party conferences are a bit like a bubble. Um, but the one thing you really felt at this one was there was only one star in town. You referenced the stage and other things. He, Boris Johnson was everywhere, but you did have this sense among a cabinet, among ministers, that you're you almost like a- attending a cult where everyone, could, everyone who's close to the leader can see the leader's flaws, but they have to go out and tell everyone how amazing the leader is, even though they know that there are problems coming down the track. And Boris Johnson's pulled off this wonderful trick through his optimistic tone, and it's working at the moment. We're in mid term. It's not unusual for a government to hit problems and push through them and come through to the next election and still win it. So I think at the moment there's still quite a lot of faith in the leader. I don't have that sense that you had with Margaret Thatcher of absolute deep awe of the leader. They like him enormously. They enjoy being led by him. They're happy to stick with him, but the support is much shallower. And if he stopped being a winning and a winner and if his optimistic tone suddenly started to grate with the country, um, they'll
1: move on quite quickly. I think that's true, Robert, and I think the Liz Truss point is particularly interesting because um, if you look at the policy direction of this government, and let's say the country or the Tory party grassroots get fed up and want to go back to something that is more traditionally conservative, smaller state, lower taxes, then Liz Truss is perfectly primed to seize on that moment, whereas if there is that crisis in confidence, the leadership, then obviously Rishi Sunak has gone along with all these kind of things, even though ideologically he's in actually a similar place to Liz Truss. And I don't think we're in any position for a foreseeable future where there's going to be any leadership challenge, but they are both certainly ones to watch. George, just finally, obviously, there was, as we said, a big lack of any kind of policy at this conference. The only policy announced in Johnson's speech was the £3,000 bonus to encourage STEM teachers to go to schools that need them. But we've got an awful lot of policy coming later this month in what will be something akin to an early Christmas for you and I. We've got <laughs> the budget, we've got the spending review, we've got the levelling up white paper, we've got the integrated rail plans. So you can obviously say that that's why Tory strategy was at this conference, why do policy now, where you can have a big grassroots rabble-rousing exercise and then get much bigger headlines later in October when all this comes. So all that said and done, where is the party now?
3: Well, yeah, I agree, I agree with that. I don't think there's a, gen- a genuine shortage of policy at the moment. It's a genuine lack of time to deliver the policies since half the parliament's been taken up by COVID, more or less, and the aftermath of Brexit. I think it's really a question of Boris Johnson getting on to delivering things that are coming down the track. So, look, I think, you know, we are in midterm. This is the point in the parliamentary cycle where governing parties are usually behind in the opinion polls. But if you look at the opinion polls at the end of the conference season, the Tories are defiantly still ahead of Labour. You know, Keir Starmer had a decent conference, but it doesn't seem to be gaining traction at the moment. And this is the time when you take the tough decisions. And there are going to be some quite tough decisions coming up on public spending. It's going to be a tight public spending round ahead of the budget on the 27th of October. The new rail plan will see, we expect the lopping off at least part of the HS2 rail routes. So it's going to be difficult decisions for the government to try to sell. But in the end, the government is quite well positioned for this stage in the parliament.
4: I was just going to say, Seb, I think there was one major policy moment, albeit a, a mission rather than commission, which is the retreat from house building, which I think is something that the Conservatives are going to struggle with over the future. They've pulled back in the face of opposition in the South from their commitment to major house building programme. And uh, Conservatives are meant to be all about home ownership. So I do think that's
1: a moment that they might come to reflect on later. Well, plenty more to discuss there in the future. George and Robert, thank you very much. Leveling up is going to be the key thing that defines whether Boris Johnson is re-elected in 2024. At this year's Conservative Party conference, the essay question was trying to define it, and the Prime Minister, Chancellor Ishi Sunak, and the new Secretary of State for levelling up all tried to answer it with mixed results. There's still not yet any detail on how it's going to be measured, or what success is going to look like. in a fringe event with Mr Gove. I asked him to define the general ideas and he set out these four buckets that all the policies will be slotted into.
5: Uh, First of all enhancing local leadership, how you can give local leaders more power and get more people to become local leaders. The second part of it is about raising living standards and uh, it's here that we, we need to work in order to address the, the fundamental productivity problem that the UK has. The third element is improving public services, particularly where they're weaker. Um, and then the final part of it is pride in, in place. So Rachel Wolf,
1: it's great to have you on the podcast. One of the themes of this conference was trying to define exactly what levelling up is. And it's something that obviously a lot of people have, like you and I have been scratching our heads about. And it's kind of four buckets the government have set up. But do you think that on its own actually gives definition To the agenda?
0: No, uh, it narrows it down somewhat, but there's still a lot of questions that the levelling up white paper is going to answer. And each of those buckets could lead to very dramatically different policies. I think what it did do, though, was make clear that they are looking at shorter term as well as medium term to longer term gains. So this kind of bucket that they call restoring local pride, you could call civic pride, was very clearly about relatively swift measures to improve how towns and cities feel while they try and do much longer structural work. That seemed to me clear. Beyond that, no, we're still waiting for definition.
1: And Paul Swinney, it's great to have you on as well. Did you watch Michael Gove's speech to the conference hall, which was only about seven minutes long, I think. And did that give you any greater sense of what this agenda is about?
5: I was. I was actually in the conference hall when he, he gave it. And when he stopped speaking, we were wondering when he was going to start speaking again. It was so short. It didn't really. I think clearly it was a lot of grandstanding from a political perspective You know, in that speech, which you would expect. The most interesting thing was how uh, he pointed to Ben Houchen, the, the mayor of the Tees Valley, who he described as the hero of conference and sort of pointed to say, well, look at all the things that are going on in Teesside and Teesside has been regenerated because of the efforts that Mayor Houchin has, has put in place. That's a little bit of a concern, because I think if, if Mr Gove was to go and walk around uh, Teesside, you'd probably see that uh, or his version of regeneration may well not sit with the version of regeneration that many other people have. And there's clearly many decades of work still to be done. And I think, Rachel, obviously,
1: you can forgive the government somewhat because this white paper, which we now know is coming out about the time of the spending review and budget, which is due on October the 27th, that is going to give some more detail. And I think it is going to have some hard economic metrics to actually measure what levelling up is because obviously this agenda is about giving people a palpable sense that their communities are feeling better and that their vote for the Conservatives in 2019 wasn't exactly wasted. But if you take restoring local pride for example, 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 that's the fourth bucket Mr. Gove talked about in his speech. That's not necessarily an easy one to measure. So how specific do you think the government needs to be on this?
0: So I actually think you can forgive them for three reasons. Partly because the leveling up white paper is coming, partly because we now finally have a very strong ministerial team running this department, Michael Gove, Neil O'Brien, Danny Kruger and they've only just arrived, so they need to figure out exactly what they want to do. In terms of metrics, I think there are some metrics that you can apply relatively evenly across the board. So, you know, one you might think about would be footfall to a local high street. There are lots of ways I think you can measure low-level crime. But others are impossible precisely because they're local. Um, and, And it's why the restoring civic pride and the empowering local leaders is inextricably interlinked. Because when we go around towns you know, every single town has different things that mean civic and local pride to them. Some are in common, they want a decent looking high street, they don't want graffiti on the cenotaph, but others are about local events or local markets or playgrounds or specific things. And and that's only really plausible bottom up. It's why, while I think the economic metrics are important, they can't be the only thing they measure, or they may lose sight of the things that matter most to people.
1: Now, Paul, obviously, this is all part of an election strategy as well. And I think we have discerned levelling up is going to come in two phases. One is the immediate stuff that can be done between now and 2024. And second is the longer term stuff. Let's just begin with the immediate stuff. And obviously we've got the towns fund, the levelling up fund, but there's a question of delivery on that stuff because what you're talking about here is hundreds if not thousands of tiny infrastructure projects that will give, as Rachel described, people that palpable sense that their communities are a little bit better than they were before that those who feel left behind are being listened to how confident are you the government is able to do that element of
5: it before the next election i'm not especially confident i think it was great at conference that there was a an acknowledgement that it needs to be a mix of short term and long term policies i think clearly there'll be a temptation that you know, this is all made all around just short-term things about getting votes at the at the ballot box for the next election. But clearly, you know if we are going to level up the the country, we're talking about challenges that are entrenched for for many many decades, and will take you know at least ten years and probably much longer to try and unpick. In terms of trying to do some of those short-term things, I mean, yes, we can have pots of money in place as we've got with as you say with the towns fund and levelling up fund. Some of that can be used to to make some local improvements from an aesthetic perspective. But the question is there, as you say, because you'd have to talk about many hundreds or perhaps even many thousands of interventions, that's quite a lot of work to be, to be done in a, in a very short space of time. So even that, I think, is quite difficult. There's then probably a longer term challenge about some of those short term interventions, which is you know what impact are they actually going to have? So if it's about trying to make the high street look nicer or reduce vacancies in the high street. We could do things like, you know, new licks of paint or hanging baskets or things like that, which in the short term you know, would be a nice thing to do. But they don't tackle the fundamental problem as to why some of these high streets have declined in the first place. You know, and that is, for a lot of them, it's about the the movement of jobs out of the centre to, to out-of-town locations, and um, which means that you're just not pulling as many people in. And if there isn't that fundamental reason for footfall coming in the first place, you know it's going to be difficult to, to sort of make a place feel more vibrant by just doing some of those short-term interventions.
0: You need to give people a reason to believe it's worth carrying on on this journey. And, you know, they, they have felt let, let down. There has been acres written about the sort of drivers of things like the Brexit vote and how people have felt somewhat left behind. And they've made a vote for a new party for the first time. And you need to show them that it was worth doing so that they stay with you for that longer-term journey, uh, which is why I've always emphasised some of these shorter term gains while, as Paul said, trying to do some of the more kind of structural things um, and to create a virtuous cycle and, and give communities a sort of reason to push forward, which is always hard in the beginning.
1: But Rachel, let's now come to the longer term stuff, because we've talked about the kind of things you can do now to help improve sense to give people a little bit of a sense. But fundamentally, to get the kind of economic shift Boris Johnson talked about at this conference, you've got to deal with one of the thorniest problems Britain's had since the Second World War, which is its productivity issue. And it's about its skills issue as well. And we've had so many attempts at trying at this, conservative governments, Labour governments, and nobody has really cracked it. Do you think Michael Gove and Boris Johnson are going to be able to do that this time? And if so, why?
0: I guess I'd say a couple of things. The first is I do think we need a bit of collective humility here. We are not completely confident about how to measure productivity, exactly how it's declined, whether it's declined, why it's declined, how much of it is a response to global slowdowns, how much of it is local. You know, there's a lot we don't truly know. That said, I think we do know about some very specific weaknesses UK in general has and parts of the UK has. Uh, So you mentioned skills. Let me talk about skills because I spent quite a lot of my career on it. We unquestionably have comparative weaknesses with other countries on skills. We've dramatically underfunded adult skills and FE for a very long time. It's exactly the kind of skills that often people in these towns want and need. It comes up again and again in focus groups. We still don't have a fully functioning and expanded apprenticeship system. And we still have relatively poor uh, literacy and numeracy records for um, 16-year-olds plus. So, So we know we have some weaknesses that other countries don't have. I generally prefer that way of looking at it. Where are we clearly weak and do we have a good sense of what we want to do about it? Which I think in skills we do, right? We, we know what we want to do. We want to do a lifelong learning type and we want to expand apprenticeships because that's a better way, I think, of improving things than very grand theories of productivity.
1: And I think, Paul, that is the thing that I learned from this conference about levelling up. That the difference the Tories are making with Labour's approach in the past here is whereas Labour were very much focused on public sector spending and investment into public services. The Conservatives are doing that, but also with that emphasis on business investment, too. And if you think back to the early 1990s when Lord Heseltine was looking at trying to rejuvenate many cities, that's a similar formula of what he did, that he was working with local councils from Whitehall, but he was also encouraging the private sector too. And this, I guess, leads to the second issue, which is about mayors and powers. And when I did an event with Michael Gove at conference this year, for me, the most interesting thing was the fact of him saying, we still want more mayors and we want them to have the powers to attract as much business inward investment as possible, because then that becomes a cycle if you can make it work.
5: Yeah, I think that focus on trying to get those higher paid private sector jobs in is is fundamental. To try to improve both levels of productivity but then standards of living across the country you know that the big challenge that the the midlands and the north and scotland and wales have faced over the last 40 or 50 years is that it's not that they haven't attracted in business investment because actually they have it's that they haven't attracted in high skilled business investment and so the focus needs to be on you know, what are the barriers as to why those businesses aren't going to to those parts of the country and then how do we try and remove them and and as you're saying just their skills is a big part of that But the thinking around devolution in particular is about trying to Pass some policy powers down the local level, so actually you can start to flex the flex policy to adapt to to trying to address those challenges. Because the challenges that will be faced in Manchester will be different to what are faced in Leeds, what are different in in Wakefield, and and what's different in Middlesbrough. So that's why you know matching these powers down to the level the economy actually operates over at the local level is an important part of trying to attract in that business investment. And I think why. or certainly centre of cities are very enthused by the fact that devolution still very much seems to be central to the the overall policy approach to levelling up. I just want to ask you both finally, briefly, about looking forward to this
1: white paper where really the much more meat will be on how levelling up is defined and the stuff the government is going to do with the sort of two years, two, two years or so left before the next election when they have to try and make that tangible difference. Paul, first of all,
5: what would you like to see in that white paper? And do you think it'll be matched? So there needs to be a focus on the particular problems the UK faces from a productivity perspective. And that is the underperformance of our biggest cities in particular. So that's Birmingham, uh, Manchester and Glasgow, but also places like Sheffield and, and Bristol as well. That's the reason why, or the performance of those places, you know, especially relative to their Western European counterparts, which are way behind, You know, they're the principal reasons why the north of England, the Midlands and, and Scotland uh, perform so poorly in terms of productivity. And so there needs to be a focus on, it's not just about trying to improve productivity, but it's actually about being quite focused from an economy perspective to try and raise the performance of those places. Now, politically, that's very difficult because we've had a whole narrative over recent years of, actually very unhelpful narrative of cities v towns and the, the feeling in particular of actually this is all about trying to improve left behind towns. But the reality is, is the, the reason why we see the struggles of you know, the North of England more generally is because of the underperformance of Manchester and Sheffield and Newcastle. And until we get that right, we're going to continue to have this conversation. And finally, Rachel, what's your view on those two questions
1: about what you'd like to see in the paper and what you think it'll be actually like?
0: I think there has to be something that looks at places, high streets, low-level crime. I think medium and longer term, for me, it's skills, transport, particularly buses, and then R&D, private sector investment, and devolution to kind of underpin it. Those are the big categories that I'd want to see proper policies. Um, I think the big elephant in the room that we haven't discussed today is how much money is the treasury going to give and and that's going to be uh the real determiner of how ambitious this is
1: well rachel and paul thank you very much for joining and that's it for this week's episode of Payne's politics if you like the podcast then we'd recommend subscribing you can find us through all the usual channels apple spotify or google or wherever you get your podcasts to receive episodes as soon as they're released we also like positive reviews and nice ratings Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thanks for listening.
0: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.